This is episode number 481 with Chris Tate, Managing Director at Crowd. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is John Crone, a Chief Data Scientist and best-selling author on Deep Learning. Each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today, and now let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. I'm delighted to have the charming and knowledgeable Chris Tate joining us on today's program. Chris is the Managing Director for the United States at Crowd, an innovative marketing agency that is driven by data analytics and machine learning algorithms. Their data-driven approach is reaping dividends for Crowd, who have experienced hyper-growth for years and were recently recognized by Campaign Magazine as the 2020 Global Performance Marketing Agency of the Year. In today's episode, Chris fills us in on what performance marketing is, the rapidly shifting digital marketing ecosystem, as well as how data and machine learning can mitigate the risks associated with these changes. The sweet spot for augmenting human marketers' skills with machines, how any firm should define metrics to maximize return on marketing investment, thereby ensuring broader commercial success, the various data-related roles a digital marketing agency must have, and the most useful modern data science tools for global digital marketing. Today's episode will be of interest to anyone interested in driving commercial success through effective data-driven marketing strategies. No particular technical data science background is required to make the most of it. Chris, welcome to the Super Data Science Show. I'm absolutely delighted to have you on. I've wanted to have you on the show ever since I saw your YouTube webinar that's called How Not to Get Stuck in a Performance Marketing Rut. I learned so much during it. But anyway, we'll get into all of that, what performance marketing is later. Uh, First, let the audience know where you are, what's going on in your world. Thanks, John. Uh, yeah, delighted to be here. I uh, thought you'd never ask, so um, it's great to it's great to be here. Um, <laughs> I am in Brooklyn. I'm in Brooklyn. Yeah, um, you know, getting through the the nearly summer, um, and not too far away from you, just over the bridge. Yeah, so we're just opposite sides of the Brooklyn Bridge. And full disclosure for the audience, I have been friends with Chris for many years. We met in a dog park in the West Village neighborhood of Manhattan. Uh, we both used to live in the West Village, basically. Uh, nearby there anyway. And our dogs, they're just a month apart. So your dog, Ruby, is one month younger than my dog, Oboe. And so we started going to the dog park around the same time. And our dogs have always been obsessed with each other. Um, Indeed. And so begrudgingly, we had to be friends. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Luckily, we got along, wasn't it? We were spending several hours in the dog park pre-6 a.m. For sure. All right, so you're here today to tell us all about performance marketing. So first off, what is it? Great, yeah. So p- performance marketing is a term that you know has been coined probably over the last decade and a little bit more, um, but generally relates to the the marketing practice of demand generation, lead generation, um, conversion, sales, right? So making sure that we can uh, spend media to get people to our websites to convert. 
And, you know, the, the term really got coined when Google and Facebook started accelerating the ways that you can market online with their platforms. Um, so actually, I like to think of it as just marketing, but I think performance marketing describes exactly what we do um, relating to the media. I guess maybe part of that is the idea that for a long time before there was digital marketing, when it was billboard ads and newspaper ads, it was probably very difficult to measure how effective your marketing was. And now these days with digital marketing channels, probably on many of the channels that you use, you can at least have some sense of the performance of the marketing spend. 100%, 100%. I mean, that that is one of the key factors, you know, where in the past you would have to do kind of inferred models or, or big econometric models to try and understand, okay, we just put this TV spot live, we just put this radio spot live, what impact did it have on our sales? Now we can see it within an hour or we can, we can see it almost in wow. real time if someone clicks, if someone converts. Um, and, and honestly, that's excellent in one manner where we can see very, very quickly what's going on and we can optimize, but also I think creates kind of a, a bad habit of, of being so reactive to things straight away. Um, right. And I think that's, you know, we'll talk about that in, in terms of what that means for marketing in general. But for me, it, it's sort of gone so far down one route that people focus on everything they can see and forget about, you know, what we're actually trying to say to the audience and what we're trying to sell to the audience. Um, so, yeah, we can talk about that more as well. Nice. We will for sure. Uh, before we get there, I think one of the big kind of distinctions to make in the performance marketing space is this difference between multi-channel versus single channel marketing. What does that mean? What are, the, what are those two things? Yeah. So I think one of the one of the. The, the risks and one of the trends that has been happening over the, the past few years is um, I think the stat is something like 90% of all new media spend goes to Google and Facebook. And, you know, they are the powerhouses of um, digital media spend, especially, but certainly just, just any media that you're trying to put into the market. It's very easy to execute it on those platforms. And from a performance marketing perspective, they perform really well. Like they've built their ad platforms incredibly well uh, and the, the machine learning algorithms, again, we'll come on to this later, are very, very, very good. Um, and so you spend a dollar on Facebook, you're going to get a good amount of dollars back. And as you've said, it's trackable. So we can know, put a dollar in, get $3 back. Um, and th that's been happening a lot. And I think from a, a single channel point of view, that's where people are going. They're going to Google or Facebook. But we know that from a, um, uh, there, was, there was a study done by a gentleman called Mark Ritson, um, who, uh, look him up if you're interested, really, really entertaining speaker. But he looked at um, hundreds of award entries for this uh, award ceremony called the Effies. And he found out that uh, campaigns that used one channel were 37% less effective than campaigns that used multi-channels. Um, and so when we say multi-channel, we mean you're using video, you're using uh, search, Google search or Bing search, you're using um, display ads, you're using social ads, and you're creating that kind of multi-channel picture, holistic picture for someone to uh, see your brand, right? Um, if you're only on Google, people aren't noticing you unless they're searching for you. 
Um, so the stats are really compelling. And I think that's one of the things that we try to, you know, work with brands on is to give them that sort of holistic marketing plan rather than say, let's just spend our money on Google. Let's just spend our money on Facebook. Nice. And I think that probably ties into the next point that I wanted to talk about. And I think you wanted to talk about, which is that diversification probably helps us avoid some of the big risks in performance marketing. So it seems like in life, whether it's a financial portfolio or um, career strategy or business strategy, diversification is key to success and resilience, right? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And, you know, like, uh, so the risks of using, you know, the risks of creating your whole business. And, and by the way, there are a lot of companies in this current environment that have um, sprung up, like a lot of D2C companies, for example, they've sprung up, they've got a really good product. They're trying to compete against a razor or a shampoo or, or whatever it is. And, and you know, they're, they're still going, um, they're still coming out daily. You see a new one. Um, they build their businesses a lot of the time on performance marketing because they're, they're super smart people. They know how to be accountable um, and they know how to use these platforms really, really effectively. Um, but the risk is that if something in the industry changes, right, if there's a regulation that changes, if there's a technology that changes, if, um, for example, the antitrust uh, lawsuit that's going on in in uh, the government right now around Google's, the Amazon's, the Apple's of this world, like if something changes um, with these platforms, your marketing strategy is open to a lot of risk if that's all you're using. So that's one of the big things that we're trying to show people is, is that risk. Um, one of the large things that's happening in the industry right now is the app tracking transparency. So if you've updated to iOS 14.5 on your phone and you've started updating your apps, you'll see that they're asking you if you would like to be tracked or not. Um, and it's really interesting to see how that data is impacting people uh, and brands. So what that means for the industry is that we can't see um, the website or the brands and the apps can't see the websites that you're going on to visit and they they sort of kind of getting rid of cookies, which is a which is what advertising and performance marketing has been built on for for years, right? We cookie you, John. You go to this different website. We can see that you're interested in this. We can see that you spend money here, um, and then we can retarget you. And, and retargeting is the most effective channel, right? Because we know a lot about you. Um, and this, and, and again, so if your marketing strategy has been built a lot on that, and iOS 14. Uh, Apple say, no, we're looking after user privacy now. We're not having that. That has a huge impact, a huge impact on your marketing strategy. Every brand that we're working with right now is working through that. They're, they're thinking, okay, we're going to have less data on our on our customers. What do we do about that? Um, and that, that kind of might might bring us on to what machine learning and what data science can can, can do about that. Yeah, I'll ask about that in one second, but there's one term that you mentioned. You said that one of the most effective marketing strategies is retargeting. What does that mean? Yeah, so retargeting is, is effectively, I mean, just to provide some context, the terms that get you know talked about and, and banded around in our industry are prospecting. So prospecting is when you are looking for new customers that might have never heard your brand before. Um Mid funnel, <laughs> so mid funnel. Well, top of funnel is prospecting. Mid funnel is when you're kind of uh, re-engaging with people and um, warming them up to your brand. So you know that they've seen one of your videos, but maybe they haven't been to your website. You know that they've maybe seen one of your ads, but 
you know, there's no real kind of connection there. So the middle of funnel is kind of you're engaging these people again, you're showing them what you do. And then the bottom of the funnel, um, and this is real classic marketing top talk, the bottom of the funnel is effectively retargeting, right? They're people that are super close to converting with you, but haven't quite yet. Um, and so when we're using cookies, we can see, um, uh, we can say something like, okay, John has been to our site. We're going to retarget him aggressively in the first three days, less aggressively for the next seven, and then even less aggressively for the next 30. And what we do there is we lower our, uh, we lower how much we're willing to pay for you. And you can do loads of different optimizations within that, but it's, it's the one that obviously returns the best marketing um, return on ad spend or ROI. Um, but that's obvious because it's doing the easiest job. It's just flipping people when they're ready. Nice. So retargeting is the last one. It's the bottom of funnel where you have data that indicate that this person is very likely to convert and then you can optimize accordingly. Got it. Um, so yeah, so transitioning to the next point that you kind of already started to talk about. So with things like Apple uh, allowing a lot more privacy for users if they want it, cookies maybe are going to be gradually phased out in years to come, probably something that wasn't anticipated at all just a couple of years ago, but now maybe something that's going to happen. So with fewer third-party data on what other websites people have visited, maybe what other ads they've seen, what can your clients do? What can people who are advertising do? Yeah. So the, the big the big buzzword, the big trend um, in, in marketing, certainly in our industry, probably in yours too, is first-party data, right? Like, what, what do we know about our current customers? Um, what, what do we collect on them? What can we legally collect on them? And I think I, I've been talking about, so I do a predictions piece every year, and um, which I can point to later. For the last three years, it's been um, more, more investment in data quality. And the, the reason I say that is because with this performance marketing world, we've been really spoiled. And we've been really spoiled in the way that we can spend money on these platforms like Google and Facebook. Generally, they work incredibly well and they are built to be successful, right? That's how they keep increasing their media dollars. That's how Google keeps increasing their stock price. They're incredibly good. Um, but when you layer on, okay, well, people are stopping the tracking. Uh, we're not going to be able to know as much about these customers. Um, then, then we go into, okay, so how can we solve this for brands? Number one, they have to invest in their data quality. They have to um, understand, basically, they have to have clean data in, internally. Um, the ideal scenario is they have a technology which would have a single customer view of, of, a, of a customer within their portfolio. Um, and then, then they can be, then they can use that. And we can go on to kind of use cases of predictive modeling and, and the way that we might use data science on that data set. But the, before we get to that, the other side is, okay, so we have less data on, on our customers. Um, in, a, in a previous world, we, we could say, um, we could control all of this manually. So we could say, we know age demographic, we know time of day, we know day of week, we know the weather today, we know what site you just visited. There was quite a lot that we could um, that we could optimize on, maybe like five or six clear data points that we could optimize on. And the way that we would do that in, in the past is say, okay, this week we're going to look at all of the data and we're going to say, 
we're going to optimize the bids by X percent because we've seen people convert uh, on a Tuesday more than a Monday. Okay, that's our optimization for this week. Let's let's do it and let's give it another week to, to um, bed in. The week after, we'd do another one. So we'd say age of people or gender of people and we'd optimize there. And it was quite a formulaic process, right, to optimize media. Now we're leaning into machine learning and algorithms provided by Google and by Facebook and by other kind of programmatic media buying platforms. Um, and programmatic media buying is effectively just being able to buy in real time and being able to buy on platforms that you can execute very quickly rather than, oh, can I buy this TV spot? Yeah, let's plan for it for a few months. You're going to buy that spot at 7 p.m., et cetera, et cetera. We can do that very quickly by programmatic media. Um, nice. So can you, so you talked about investment in data quality and having lots of first party data. Can you use tools provided by Google, Facebook, other programmatic options with your first party data? 100%, 100%. So yeah, so, but the, the key thing is if you feed, if you feed it bad data, not you know, you're not in a good scenario there so right, right, right. that's what you get suboptimal performance if you if you put bad data in but if you do concentrate on that kind of um you know clustering of um clustering of customers and um you know having a really clean database around when people last purchased with you how much they spent um this has been a focus for years within our within our environment but i think people have gotten quite lazy around it and um you know haven't haven't kept their databases clean and, and easy to read. Um, and so what ends up happening is that you go, can we have a um, email list of people that have purchased in the last 30 days? And, and that was quite easy to get for, that was quite easy to get for brands. Um, but it's not that advanced, right? It's like, okay, so these people have um, purchased in the last 30 days. Let's look for more of these people. Okay, good. And, and what, what happens there is we say, here are, here are 3000 people that purchased. Here you go, Google. Can you find more of them for us? And they have an incredible machine learning algorithm that does that. It, it does it very effectively. But what we're saying now is, okay, but what if we knew? Um, what if we knew? Okay, so those people that purchased in the last thirty days. What if we could segment it further and say, well, these these people purchased over three thousand dollars worth of product. These people between one and two, and these people like under a thousand. Um, and then, okay, well, actually, we don't make that much money on these under a thousand people. Why don't we find more of the three thousand people? And that's just a really simple way of thinking about it. But we can get much more advanced in what we're feeding Google and Facebook. Cool. This episode is brought to you by Super Data Science. Yes, our online membership platform for transitioning into data science and the namesake of the podcast itself. In the Super Data Science platform, we recently launched our new 99-day data scientist study plan, a cheat sheet with week-by-week -week instructions to get you started as a data scientist in as few as 15 weeks. Each week, you complete tasks in four categories. The first is Super Data Science courses to become familiar with the technical foundations of data science. The second is hands-on projects to fill up your portfolio and showcase your knowledge in your job applications. The third is a career toolkit with actions to help you stand out in your job hunting. 
And the fourth is additional curated resources such as articles, books, and podcasts to expand your learning and stay up to date. To devise this curriculum, we sat down with some of the best data scientists as well as many of our most successful students and came up with the ideal 99-day data scientist study plan to teach you everything you need to succeed so you can skip the planning and simply focus on learning. We believe the program can be completed in 99 days and we challenge you to do it. Are you ready? Go to superdatascience.com challenge, download the 99-day study plan and use it with your Super Data Science subscription to get started as a data scientist in under 100 days. And now let's get back to this amazing episode. All right, yeah, somehow I didn't know that you could do that with your own first party data. That makes a lot of sense to reiterate the importance of the data quality piece. That is something that has been getting a lot of press in the kind of data science world lately. So a lot of uh, preeminent data scientists like Andrew Hung have been uh, talking about how absolutely critical it is to have high quality data. For me personally, I just had this week someone start a data scientist who is focused 100% on improving data quality. So instead of having this data scientist focus on models that are in our platform, this data scientist is using models to improve data quality so that our downstream in-platform models have um, richer, more accurate data to work with. And so absolutely it is you can't possibly, no matter how good a machine learning algorithm is, you cannot have it perform well unless the quality of the data going into it is high. Definitely so. Definitely so. And I, I think another thing to mention here is, um, you know, that the the way the really advanced best case scenario of what we could do with this is that we could actually use it in a in a um, real time basis to optimize based on kind of a lifetime value metric. Um, and say, you know, we could, here's one example that, that we've been working on recently. So working with a um, university to try and understand what the value of a application is to that university. So the way that we're sort of discovering and preparing that data is effectively looking at student records. So they have a lot of data on student records, like application details, fees, margins, uh, dropout rates, etc. And then pairing that up with user behavior online, like what have they done when they come to our website? Um, how long did it take them to apply? And then obviously you have all of the demographic and, and data behind that, where they are in the country, et cetera. Um, and once we've kind of um, unified that data into a single customer view, then we can cal calculate a lifetime value for every single student that comes through there. Um, and so once we've done that, we can then do a couple of things. We can do like, predictive modeling based on uh, when a lead comes in, what do, do we think it's going to be valuable or do we not think it's going to be valuable based on 10 years of history? And we can also do more like clustering. So we can say, here's a cluster of people that have applied to the six-year program. They all live on the West Coast. They've, they're female um, and they're in like the top 10% of lifetime value. Um, and then once we have that data, we can start using like really advanced stuff, probably a little bit above my head in terms of the, the practicality of it, but effectively, simply, it is pushing that data into online platforms and using the lifetime value to bid in real time to say, you know, we see someone searching on Google. Within 20 seconds, we can say, 
okay, we think they're at this type, this type of lifetime value, let's down, downweight our bids. And this is all done within the sort of machine learning algorithms that, you know, are afforded to us. Um, and then we feed the data into that. Nice. And so just to clarify what lifetime value is, is that that's the value, it's the predicted value of a given person in terms of how much they're likely to pay your 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 company at any given time, or I guess over their entire lifetime? Yeah, it's actually a good, it's a really good question because people um, define lifetime value differently depending on what you, you know, what business you work in or how it's been done in your business in the past. And, uh, you know, for the for the students at the university, it will be the, the the value of that student for the lifetime of when they go to when they graduate. For uh, e-commerce, people do things like the how much a customer would spend within a year, how much they would spend in two years. Um, but effectively, it's trying to work out a number that says, okay, if we know that number, we have much more power in terms of how much we can spend to acquire that person. Um, and we have much more, uh, not, yeah, basically that, you know, m- much more power about our, our um, budget. Whereas in the past, what people have done is say, you know, here's an example. Someone converts on our website. It takes it. We spent a hundred bucks to get that person to convert and they spent 200 bucks with us. Okay. There's a good return there, but what if they come back several times in the next year? It's not getting factored into the um, calculation. And so we're, we're kind of limiting how much we can spend per, per acquisition. Um, so yeah, th- this is a big topic of discussion in the marketing industry. And I think a lot of what, you know, what, what you do as a profession and the data scientists at, at crowd can play a huge role for brands, like powering their kind of marketing teams. Nice. So digging into that a little bit more, you've talked about some of the big advantages of allowing machine learning algorithms to allocate budgets. So some of these things are obvious to me, uh, you know, without having been working in marketing recently myself, things like being able to in real time adjust bids for a particular person based on demographic information, past website views, where that cookie information is available maybe layering in this first party data that may be available as well. Basically, machines can be 24 seven, 365 days a year, be adjusting how much to spend to get an ad or a a Google search result presented to a given person based on their characteristics, things like their lifetime values you just described. So that's the kind of obvious advantage to machines. And also just, I mean, yeah, being able to use trillions and trillions of historical data points to be able to optimize, allocate that spend efficiently, especially if you're working with one of the big players like Google or Facebook. So I can see tons of advantages to machines, but can humans still provide value anyway? Um, yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, so I think one of the, you know, with with automation and, and in every industry, when people hear that word, it's like, okay, how can we make these jobs more efficient? And and people think it will get rid of a, a truck driver or whatever it is, or a, or a farmer, um, if we can increase automation. And, and that's the same in marketing, right? Like, we've coming for a world where there's a lot of manual hands-on keyboard work. Um, and now if you tell me, okay, well, I can do the same thing by setting something alive and forgetting about it. 
that saves us a lot of time. Now, in the marketing industry, um, people are time poor. It's it's 24-7, it's always on, um, and there's always, always work we can do, right? We have to stop somewhere, like we have to have a life outside of work, but if we didn't have lives, there's always something we can do. Um, And so what my vision and what I think everyone is sort of thinking within this is that we have a lot of smart and creative people that, that know marketing, that know the practice of marketing. And we don't want them spending all of their time in these platforms, kind of pushing buttons to optimize media. Like that is a much better job for a machine to do. Um, and so what we're going to do is we're going to release those sort of people into more creative tasks, into more strategic tasks, into more, you know, what is this data telling us tasks? Um, and that will, you know, we might come on to sort of measurement later, but interpreting the results, like that's a huge, um, that's machines haven't got that yet. Like they haven't got to the stage where they can do it and tell us what to do next. I think it's like, we need to uh, like understand that data, understand what the business objectives are, and then make a decision on where to go next. And that is some of the stuff that falls down and some of the stuff that people don't have time to do right now because of the labor intensity of digital marketing. So I think it will balance out. And I think that the overall industry, the productivity of it and the output of it will get will get much better over time as automation continues to roll out, which it already has in a major way. Makes perfect sense. So you folks at Crowd have had an enormous amount of success lately. I know that you've had you know, huge double digit growth year over year for many years now. The New York office that you lead which is the whole US operations, has in particular seen a lot of growth in the last few years. So what does crowd specifically do? How does crowd manage to get this balance right of using machines to optimize, like you're saying, to be getting all the nuances 24-7 taken care of to free up time for human creativity and strategy? Yeah. Um, so just in terms of what crowd does, so, so we are a, a, a digital marketing agency, we're a performance marketing agency, we're a marketing agency. I think, you know, th- those, those terms are interchangeable, but we, we do bill ourselves as a performance marketing agency. And, and that means the channels that we uh, run in are all of the Googles, the Facebooks, the, the programmatic media and display online media. We do a lot of app advertising for you know various finance brands and, and fintech brands, et cetera. Um, we also do the gamut of kind of creative and content services. Um, and one of our really, I think we've talked about it all day uh, today, but the data solutions department, which is effectively data analytics, uh, reporting and data visualization, data science, and measurement and effectiveness is a really important um, growing department for us because as the um, automation continues to come in within our industry, some of those sort of media buying practices will be taken over more and more by algorithms and by machines buying that media. And so the skills that we can like really help brands on are Number one, like what is our overall kind of media plan? You know, where should we be spending that money? How much of it should we be spending on those different channels? Um, And then how do we interpret all of this? So I think the data solutions department where it's like, okay, we're visualizing this in a really good way. I mean, you can visualize stuff in a really bad way as well. So it needs to be readable and it needs to be actionable. Um, And then also helping brands go through this environment of like, okay, we're getting less third-party data on our customers 
Um, our first party data isn't great. Like, how do we how do we sort of transition into this new world? Um, so, Crowd has been at a position where we can we can provide a lot of services across that brand. We don't just do this kind of media buying performance element. Um, and we can grow with brands. So we can start with the media buying performance and then we can grow and we can launch brands internationally and we can do every language and, and market in the world as well. Um, uh, and it's worth touching on like in this environment, it's quite interesting because crowd has a model of sort of decentralizing our workforce. So we have five hubs globally, um, two in America, LA and New York, two in England, London and Shrewsbury, uh, and one in Sydney in Australia. And there are 230 people in those offices, but we also have 2,400 people everywhere, anywhere. doesn't matter where you are. Um, and we use those people um, through our technology to execute tasks for us. So we might say we need to analyze this uh, data. We might say we need to drop this creative. We might say we need to, uh, we might need this person for five hours a month on this specific skill set. Um, and so we've created this kind of, um, I mean, it was quite easy for us to transition into a, a work from home environment because we were already doing it with 2000 people. Um, so that has been incredibly useful for us. But I think, you know, what crowd does is it helps brands. Yes, manage the media, but try and navigate this new world of like, OK, how do we read it? What do we do from a reporting and optimization point of view? And how do we scale the company both in the US and globally? Nice. And so then that explains the name crowd. So C-R-O-U-D, it's a mix of cloud and having, I guess, so you have a big crowd, uh, C-R-O-W-D, in the cloud. <laughs> um, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right, right. Pretty good name, actually. Pretty, you know, it's yeah. um, fair play to the founders. I think that's spot on. It is, actually. I didn't until now appreciate how great that name really is. <laughs> um, nice work, founders, indeed. So, so it seems clear that humans can provide a huge amount of value as you've outlined, even things like being able to define what lifetime value is, what that means for a particular customer. Obviously no machine can do that. That requires a lot of thoughtfulness, a lot of working with the client um, to figure out exactly what their needs are. So that brings me to my next question, which is, you know, this is a data focused program. What are the best key performance indicators? What are the best marketing metrics or general strategies that people can be following when they're trying to market their product? Yeah. So that this is a really good question. Um, what is, and just to provide some context, um, you know, what has happened in this um, sort of performance marketing environment is everything is trackable, right? We can track, we can track how long you've been on a website, how you moved through that website, like where your mouse went, did you click on this? Did you click on that? Um, and so the risk of that is that you get way too distracted by every single metric. Um, and so what we recommend is that we focus on a, a core KPI. Like ideally, there needs to be a, a business um, uh, kind of challenge. Like what is the business trying to solve? There is something that we're trying to solve. Okay, and how can marketing help you solve that? So there needs to be a, a business objective, a marketing objective. Um, and the marketing objective should be very, it should be measurable, it should be time bound, and there should be a um, there should be a sort of before and after. So like here, here's a good core KPI for a business. It's we would like to increase our revenue 
30% from 1 million to 1.3 million in FY21. So you've got the, the what you want to increase revenue by how much, from what to what, and when. Um, and so that is a very, very good core KPI for the business. What tends to happen is that people concentrate too much on the um, what's the click-through rate of our ad, how much do we pay for that click, where do we rank on Google when someone searches this. These are all really good in-flight metrics, right? They're good to sort of diagnose what's going on. Um, but people take them incredibly seriously and change their marketing strategy based on them sometimes, which is not a good thing to do. So my, our, our sort of signal is don't get too sidetracked by the kind of things that you can track every minute. Make sure that you're setting up your business for um, success with like, like a core KPI that can feed down. Um, and so, you know, when, when we get this core KPI from a business and then they say, hey guys, can you launch this campaign on Friday evening and we need to do it really quickly? You know, we ask, how does this relate to your, how does this relate to your core KPI? Um, and if it doesn't, why are we all wasting time doing it? Um, and that's, that's one of the key things that I think. Stop, stop looking at everything. Look at the things that are important. Nice. That makes sense. So I guess kind of to summarize, it's have probably fewer metrics. So you're not trying to like follow tons of different kinds of metrics that end up leading you all over the place, but as much as possible have a small set of key performance indicators that are directly tied to a business objective. And as you mentioned, they're time bound, they're um, relevant obviously to the business objective. So, um, so that's the what, we already talked about the when, the time boundness, and then how much. So we have this kind of quantifiable um, this, this quantifiable target. That makes perfect sense to me. Um, I think, it, yeah, it's with all of the data available, as you're saying, you can end up kind of probably chasing yourself around in circles. If every day you're reacting to different changes, um, they might not be meaningful yeah. changes. And so you end up wasting a lot of time and effort and ultimately maybe even um, like counteracting some progress that you've been making. Yeah, and, and think about think about um, <clears throat> think about a business when they're the CEO has some objectives, the CMO, your director, and your direct report. They, they all have different KPIs. That's right. twenty KPIs. And so, what do you do? what do you do? And and it, and this is like a, it's a really challenging thing because sometimes the director hasn't got the purview of the business kind of objective. That they're working down here within their kind of little little bubble within the business and. And we try and challenge people to say, okay, but has your boss told you what those business objectives are? And how is your marketing campaign going to help towards that? Um, you know, a lot of the time it's like, well, we just need to deliver business performance. doesn't mean anything. Like, we, need, we need it to be quantifiable and we need it to be clear so that when we're executing marketing campaigns, they are, they are going towards that business growth uh, metric. Nice. Makes perfect sense. Thank you for illuminating us all, Chris. So clearly you at Crowd are doing really interesting things. You've got a unique kind of place in the market. You're obviously having a huge amount of success with that. You're getting the right balance of machines and humans. So are you hiring right now? Uh, what, what roles are you hiring for? And if you are, what do you look for in the people that you hire? Yeah. 
Uh, we are hiring. We are hiring across every department in New York, um, which is great news. And it's it's a it's a great time. It's a great time to be in digital marketing. It's super exciting. Um, you know, a lot of media investment is moving from more traditional places like TV and radio into into digital and even you know connected TV. We all have Hulu. We all have Roku. We can buy ads on that. Um, and so the places that we're hiring are all across the biddable media team, and that is kind of operational people that you know are hands on keyboard or telling the algorithms what to do. Um, but also within the the data analyst sort of role as well, digital analytics roles. Um, what, one of the ones that might be interesting to, to your audience as well is as we are looking for a data strategy director um, that will kind of lead that data solutions department within New York, work very closely with the UK. Um, and, and, you know, look after data visualization, data science teams, predictive modeling teams. They don't need to be specifically a pr- practitioner, but they will be, you know, overseeing the sort of forward looking strategy for, for crowds data solution in New York. Nice. Perfect. So you've told us a lot of hiring, particularly that last one sounds very interesting. The director of data solutions, if I remember that correctly, but, uh, so what do you look for? So in somebody that is say this director of data solutions, what, you know, when someone comes in uh, or you see their resume, what makes you feel like, yeah, this is definitely the right fit for us? Yeah, definitely. Definitely a good question. Um, I mean, I, we, we, we look for people that are interested in building something. You know, we, we, we are an agency that are still quite young in New York in the context of this market. Um, we offer equity and we want people to feel like they're building something that they're proud of, and that they can, you know, they're, they're having a great story about their career. Um, we're not the agency that is uniform. We're not the agency that is um, 20 years old and has every single process worked out. Um, we're trying to create something that's new. Um, and I think someone that's open-minded to like this model of, yes, we have 200 people in the offices that, that work with clients and speak to clients, but we also have a huge work, workforce behind you. The benefit of that for an employee is that they get to spend more time on the interesting stuff and less time on all of the manual work within the platform. And, and people that get that are, are love crowd. People that nice. don't get that, they don't. And that's fine. That, you know, it's totally fine if you, if you don't. Um, that's what attracted me to here. And I've been here nine years. So it, it, it works. <laughs> Basically, relative to other marketing agencies, there's an opportunity to really move up the value chain. Um, with, so. yeah, your strategy and that kind of thing. Kind of crazy. You might be in a lightning storm too. I've never been in a lightning storm while I'm filming a podcast episode and oh I'm God. noticing I can even <laughs> see like, I'm sometimes, if you're watching the YouTube version of this, my whole face goes blue because of the lightning that's crashing right outside my window. That is insane. <laughs> yeah. Um, so cool. All right. The last kind of key question that I have related to the marketing work that you do is what kinds of tools do you or your team use a crowd day to day that allow you to take advantage of data um, and maybe even some modeling? Yeah, good question. I mean, I once got asked this question, um, slightly different question, but what's your favorite channel within crowd? And, and my answer was analytics because it powers it powers everything that we do. Um, we've obviously talked about that today. So Google Analytics is is one of the most used tools in our repertoire. Um, you know, analyzing site data, analyzing user and audience behavior on a website, analyzing conversion data and revenue, super powerful. 
Um, and we both have a, you know, that's a free tool um, to use us. Uh, when you start to get over a million visits a month, you need to pay for the premium version to get all of the data. Um, but there's a long, there's a long way to go to that for most businesses. Um, and alongside that, we use the Google marketing platform, which is, it's, it's a stack of tools that you could build your whole business on from a marketing perspective, from a tracking perspective, um, from a measurement perspective. So you have things like Google ads, Google analytics, um, DV360, which is a programmatic um, DSP where we can go and buy media from New York Times or Wall Street Journal and we can buy it programmatically in real and time. Just to jump in there quick to let people know what a DSP is, it's a demand side marketplace, right? Yeah, um, demand so side platform. a bit about like why that's relevant in marketing. Yeah, so it, it's relevant. So we, we can use a, a demand side platform to um, connect to loads of different exchanges of where inventory is and when i say inventory that is um relevant inventory on a website so when we go onto the new york times for example and you see a display ad um which might be a retargeting ad or it might be a prospecting ad um we can see that inventory within the dsp and we can buy it we can buy it saying we want to buy it here or we can let an algorithm buy it as well um and, and that basically that dsp would plug into thousands of those exchanges and um, maybe it's like a gaming website maybe it's uh, youtube maybe it's you know whatever it is and the the, be the benefit of it is that we can buy all of that media in one place rather than going to the new york times and going to the wall street journal and right. the tracking is everywhere so we can buy it in one place and we can track it in one place and um, so in addition to buying and tracking that probably also affords you much more um breadth and potential with what you're doing with third-party data, first-party data, machine learning models, if you, in one place, have access to thousands of major websites with lots and lots and lots of ad inventory, then you can much more efficiently allocate your purchase of that ad inventory than if you were constraining yourself to just the New York Times. 100%. And where we've got a really good example of that, where we've used a custom bidding algorithm, um, which we created, like a custom script, um, which effectively gave um, a value to each impression. So an impression is when I see an advert on a, on a website. Um, that's an impression. And we gave a value to an impression based on who the audience was. And so we uploaded that script and the script, I think I'm, I'm just looking at the data now, the script outperformed the standard algorithm, Google standard algorithm by 350%. Wow. Um, and, and, that's, that's and you guys built that in-house. So like your data science team data created science team a model and then you can upload the model into the Google Marketplace platform, into things yep. like the DB360 demand side platform. Exactly. But it goes into DB360 um, and then it uses that script to buy uh, and change bids um, based on some of the lifetime value and audience data that the brand had. And this was for a financial website trying to get subscriptions. Um, so Ooh. super powerful. And the other, the other tools that it's worth just mentioning, because uh, these things might not be things that your audience are sort of aware of. Um, so we do a lot of planning work and that sort of media planning and audience planning work. And what you can do is you can use platforms and tools like Global Web Index um, and another one, which is a, a surveying tool. So they, they create... They, they're doing surveys constantly and they're asking people questions and you can go in and, and look at all of that data around what platforms are people using 
which medication are people using? Like, there's a lot of stuff in there. It's all anonymous, of course, but we can see like, okay, people who uh, go to physiotherapy elicit these kind of behaviors online. R- really, really clever stuff. Cool. Um, and the last one is SimilarWeb, which is a, a, a platform, a tool that we can kind of look at competitor data. We can see a website and we can see what kind of traffic goes to that website. And by the way, this is when we don't have access to their platforms, like their Google Analytics. Um, and it's incredibly good for like looking at a competitor and understand how they're advertising in the market, what creative they're doing, uh, how their traffic makeup is. Um, so they're, they're really important tools. And then the what you know, the data science team uses Python, uses R, um, and all of the sort of databasing um, tools that you guys are used to. I'm definitely not an expert in that, but um, yeah. Nice. Makes perfect sense, Chris. That's a really nice rundown. I I learned a few things there. I didn't know about Global Web Index or Similar Web or DB360. So it's really nice to know that there was a time many years ago when I worked <laughs> in digital marketing, but the ecosystem changes so quickly that I am easily out of date. It does. It does. Nice. So loved everything that you've told us about in this episode so far. It's clear that there's a huge amount of potential in performance marketing, in being thoughtful about your KPIs, um, not tracking too many KPIs, not being reactive, using the kinds of tools that you just mentioned. So to kind of ask you one last kind of business-related question, what kinds of clients can benefit most from working with you guys directly or working with a similar kind of approach? Um, good, good question. So, so we can, we can work with any client. Um, and we, and we do, we work with a very varied range of clients. Um, we work with a lot of retail e-commerce D2C brands. Um, and I think the, the reason for that is it lends itself very well to what we do. Um, of course, D- e-commerce, D2C in case the D- audience member isn't obvious is direct to consumer. So it's where there's, it seems like venture capital firms really love direct to consumer companies. And so, uh, you mentioned just before we started recording that it seems every day in just New York, I think uh, there's a new direct-to-consumer company every day, and it allows in this highly digital marketing world, um, and where I think there's a lot of tools that allow for seamless distribution, all these kinds of things. It allows a company to pick a very specific niche. Um, like I think this is another thing you mentioned just before recording, so I'm stealing your thunder here, but. Things like you could be like, we're going to make a razor that is better or cheaper, and we're going to market it directly to customers. We're not going to do it via a store, a third-party store, which was, yeah. you know, for mo- for most of the last century, the primary way of getting a product out there. But now you can um, you can cut out the middleman. You can go direct to a consumer. Anyway, I'll stop stealing your thunder. You can fill us in a bit more about it and why that's a particularly good opportunity the kind of performance marketing that you do yeah well like direct to consumer in nature is really good because they're speaking directly to their consumers and they're not having to go through a you know like it's not like a png where they're selling in a cvs or 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 in a walmart They, they don't have any direct relationship and so that is a very powerful when we're talking about performance marketing and first party data of course and so these companies like build or they build their businesses on knowing that they can input this and get out this. Um, and so, you know, Harry's is a very good example that you sort of sort of alluded to there, shaving company, 
they've just created a razor that competes with Gillette, like a very, very old traditional brand mm-hmm. and sold the company for 1.4 billion. <laughs> like it's a razor. Um, and they've obviously created a lot of different, I mean, I, I think I bought some Harry's, um, clay yesterday for my hair um so they've obviously they've obviously gone into a lot of different products and we work with a lot of those brands because um the performance marketing works very well from a facebook perspective from a google perspective but they also if you think about an e-commerce brand they can sell they, they can be on social they can be on tiktok they can be on facebook they can be on instagram they can be on snapchat they can be on google they can be on they can be everywhere and they can be on um, affiliate websites that could be on Alibaba or in China, they could be on any platform. And with retail brands, they're quite complex because they have a lot of different products, a lot of different pricing, they have stock to worry about. And so that just means it's more advanced in terms of um, what they need from an agency like us. And therefore we can provide more value or a lot of value um, versus a um, business to business website that has one conversion action get an inquiry um right that that is infinitely more easy and scalable to just do rather than all of the kind of complex nature of d2c brands so um d2c brands have been great for us and um, we worked with some really good ones in new york one, one called burrow which is a, a sofa company which you know well john i think you have one uh, I do, indeed. <laughs> there you go so they uh, and that was not because i recommended it but they are great and um they uh, are scaling into loads of different kind of uh, niches within within the home, right? They're becoming more of a lifestyle brand now. So yeah, th- those kind of clients are great for us, but we can work with anyone based on what we do. Beautiful. All right. So starting to wrap up, Chris, do you have a book recommendation for us? Uh, a book recommendation. So I actually wrote, um, recently wrote uh, a seven lessons for seven years in New York uh, post, which which went down quite well. And I mentioned a couple of books in it. Um, and the one that really, really impacted me and I thought was fantastic is, is one called the sales acceleration formula. Um, and I, you know, started out in sales and I've got a real passion for sales, but I'm, but I'm also, you know, probably not someone that you think about when you think about a salesperson, because I, I really like the sort of data driven approach to it. Um, it's, it's, it's all about, you know, input output numbers and, and convincing people and so the book is called sales acceleration formula it's by um a guy called mark roberts uh Ro- sorry mark roberge and he was um the head of acquisition the head of demand generation for hubspot which is a marketing platform that ho- quite a lot of people will probably know and it's how he took it from zero to 100 million and everything that he did uh, and it really defined when I first landed in New York, uh, 2015, I was like, okay, where do I start? And that book really helped me. It was, it was fantastic. And everyone that I've recommended it to has really enjoyed it. Um, quick read and it will help you like put in your mind, like how you could start a company and scale it. Beautiful. That's a great practical recommendation. So Chris, so much insight that you provided for us in this episode, so much potential uh, for working with you, either by being hired by you or um, being a client of yours. So how can people get in touch? Uh, so I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. I'm relatively active on Twitter. Um, so you can you can connect with me on LinkedIn for sure. Um, you can follow me on Twitter and see what I'm uh, complaining about or, <laughs> or, or absolutely uh, loving probably soccer, football, 
uh, and technology. Um, and yeah, you can you can drop me an email as well. I'm sure we can leave our, our email and details in your notes. Nice. Yeah, absolutely. I will be sure that we have all three of those, your LinkedIn, your Twitter, and your email address in the show notes. Chris, thank you so much for being on the program. This was such a great practical episode on marketing analytics. Really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, John. Thanks, everyone. I love what a cool, composed, and articulate speaker Chris is. Not too many years ago, I worked as a data scientist in the digital marketing world, but it's amazing how quickly the marketing ecosystem has evolved. There was a ton for me to learn from Chris during filming of the episode. Chris filled us in on what performance marketing is, including the advantages of a diversified multi-channel strategy, how privacy measures are beginning to shift marketing power from third-party data sources like Google and Facebook toward first-party data on your customers, as well as how machine learning can make the most of this new paradigm. We talked about how algorithms surpass human capabilities at optimizing advertising campaigns, but also free up human time for higher value activities around creativity, drawing inferences, and strategizing. We talked about how refined, quantifiable, and time-bound marketing metrics are the surest path to commercial success. And we talked about the huge breadth of data roles in modern performance marketing agencies like Crowd across specializations in analytics, visualization, data science, and data solutions. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, and the URLs for Chris's LinkedIn profile and his Twitter account, as well as his email address and my own social media profiles at superdatascience.com 481. That's superdatascience.com 481. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd of course greatly appreciate it if you left a review on your favorite podcasting app or on the Super Data Science YouTube channel where we have a video version of this episode. To let me know your thoughts on the episode, please do feel welcome to add me on LinkedIn or Twitter and then tag me in a post to let me know your thoughts on this episode. Your feedback is invaluable for figuring out what topics we should cover next. Since this is a free podcast, if you're looking for a free way to help me out, I'd be very grateful if you left a rating of my book, Deep Learning Illustrated on Amazon or Goodreads, if you gave videos on my YouTube channel a thumbs up, or subscribe to my free content-rich newsletter on johncrone.com. To support the super data science company that kindly funds the management, the editing, and the production of this podcast without any annoying third-party ads, you could create a free login to their learning platform at superdatascience.com or consider buying a usually pretty darn cheap Udemy course published by Ligency, an affiliate of Super Data Science, such as my Mathematical Foundations of Machine Learning course. All right, thanks to Ivana, Hyman, Mario, and JP on the Super Data Science team for managing and producing another amazing episode today. Keep on rocking it out there, folks, and I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science Podcast with you very soon.